This morning's reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Nothing can separate us from God's love. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honour at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity, or are persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below And indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, if you keep those verses uh, to hand there, you'll find that uh, helpful, I think. Uh, My principal at college always used to say, the one part of any service or chapel thing or whatever that you always pay most attention to is when the word of God is read because it's the one bit he could rely on on definitely coming from God. So keeping the reading before you means you're at least getting something, if nothing else. Um, as you sort of heard that passage read this morning, I don't know whether it sort of occurred to you, but um, the, those verses are sort of so high. It's so wonderful, the things that Paul is saying. It's hard to do it justice, it's a little bit like, this is a bit of a dated reference really, isn't it? But it's a bit like an Elvis song. It, the, the, the music and the tune is, is so great, but it's so hard not to come off when you try to replicate it as just a poor karaoke singer after one too many. Or maybe to put it in a more modern context, you know, to try to do justice to a Beyonce song. It's, it's hard not to come off in some way just undermining something that was brilliant. And I feel that a bit this morning with this passage. It's hard to really do it the justice it deserves. Paul has given us here a banquet table of the blessings of the gospel in just this chapter alone of the life, the adoption, and the glory that comes with it. But now he addresses the security of those blessings. Because, though that all may be true, you may not feel that way or you may worry that you won't keep them so Paul turns to encourage us of the security of God's favor the security of your salvation and the security of his love and so those are the three points we will look at this morning firstly the security of God's favor and just turn your eyes there to verse 31 we'll just look at that one verse for now 
Listen to these words here. This is uh, Ryan Reynolds, famous Hollywood actor. He's being interviewed about why it was he decided to invest millions and millions of pounds uh, with an active friend into buying Wrexham Football Club, a small Welsh football club. He says, the main place I got validation from my father was when I was good at sports. So I played sports long past the point where I was really driven to do sports. It carried on all through show business, an unquenchable thirst for validation. My father has been dead for years, but that stuff doesn't really go away. We see a man living a life out of a desperate desire and need for a sense of his father's favor. And here, in this one verse, we see the security of God, your father's favor to you. What then should we say to these things? Paul says, or as we've seen it before, and this the way he uses this sort of phrase, you could put it more simply, so what? It tells us that Paul is doing a couple of things. One, Paul is closing a section of his argument. So after all this has been said, so what? But secondly, it tells us that what he's going to tell us here in verses 31 to 39 is the response he expects to all those amazing truths of verse 1 to 30. This is where he thinks that you should sort of land up. What then should we say to these things? Let's take a moment then just to think about what these things are and remind ourselves of what he's shown us so far in chapter 8. Well, in verses 1 to 11, he showed us the life that we have, that apart from Jesus, we cannot truly live. In fact, all of life has the shadow of death cast over it. But that in Jesus, we find life. Chapter 8, verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, and we see some of that struggle in chapter 7, the spirit is life because of righteousness. We find a new life. Secondly, we find we're adopted, verses 12 to 17. Apart from Jesus, we're separated from God. We're living as strangers, living as exiles, lost and outside of his blessing. But through Jesus, we're adopted by God. Chapter 8, verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And just a few verses later, verse 17, if we are children, then we are heirs. We're adopted. We have life, but thirdly, we also have glory, and that was what we thought about last time. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope beyond this life. There is nothing to make sense or worth out of our suffering. It's one of the problems of human existence, isn't it? How to make any sort of sense and meaning and purpose out of suffering. And apart from Christ, there is none. But Jesus brings us glory. I consider the sufferings of the present time aren't worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. These are these things that Paul has. What then should we say to these things? To having been given life, to having been adopted, receiving his glory. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, doesn't that make it sound uncertain? As if God might not be for you. 
And yet that isn't Paul's point at all. What he's doing is is using a very common uh, rhetorical, argumentative sort of uh, device. At the time, it's called a syllogism. It's where you throw out one idea that's true, you throw out a second idea that's also true, and then you skip along to the consequence of it at the end. And Paul is doing this repeatedly through this section. You'll see him, you'll say, well, if this, then this, and we end up here. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. We know that. We know that from what Paul has said already. He's not uncertain at all. He's very certain in his mind. We are his children. We are his heirs. The last time we read that, he works all things together for good. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, of course, on the one hand, actually, you might respond, lots of people. Who can be against us? Lots of people. <laughs> lots of people are. Some may be. Some will be. But the point is that this opposition is futile and flawed because God works all things together for the good of those who love him. So it's about who you believe, who you tell yourself holds power. God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. Wonderful little one-line quip in the sitcom Fleabag. She says, maybe happiness isn't what you believe, but who you believe. It's about who you believe, who you tell yourself holds power. If God is for us, who can be against us? We see the security of God's favour. Secondly, we see the security of our salvation. I don't know whether you'll know the story of John Paul Getty. Uh, The Getty family are one of uh, the wealthiest families in the world, initially through oil. Uh, More latterly, if you do a Google image search and Sort of 75% of the pictures you'll find on there will have a little watermark on there that says Getty Images, same family branched out into a different field. One of the wealthiest families on the earth. In 1973, John Paul Getty, the sort of head of the family, was the wealthiest man in the world, so far as we knew. And in that same year, his 16-year-old grandson, John Paul III, was kidnapped in Rome kidnappers demanded a ransom of 17 million dollars. John Getty, the granddad, the patriarch, responded in the media, I have 14 grandchildren and if I pay one penny now then I'll have 14 kidnapped grandchildren. For three months the family remained silent until one day they received the severed ear of John Paul in the post with a lock of hair and a further ransom note. They then negotiated a settlement of $3.2 million, made up of $2.2 million from John, the highest tax-deductible amount that he could donate, the rest of the money loaned at 4% interest to his son. When John Paul called to thank his grandfather, John refused to come to the phone. John Paul III was never sure that he would be saved, 
he was never sure ever after whether his family wanted to save him. And he always kind of believed that they regretted saving him. You don't have to feel this way about God with you. It says of Jesus, he went to the cross, despising the shame, but the joy set before him. There is a security to yours and my salvation. Paul now points this here and he addresses four potential threats to our inheritance to show you the security of your inheritance. The first one is this, look at verse 32. You won't miss out. There's a fear, there's a threat here that you might miss out. He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Paul here is um, giving an allusion here to the Old Testament story in Genesis 22 where Abraham is asked to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice and where God responds to Abraham when he's faithful to that in verse 12 he says you've not withheld the word is the same you didn't spare your son your only son from me why does Abraham do that because he's convinced he won't lose Isaac he won't have to kill him he won't die Hebrews 11.19 tells us he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did. But we see that in the story. That's not just the preacher to the Hebrews reading that in. We see it in the story itself. Genesis 22, verse 8. Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And as said earlier, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. But now Paul believes the payoff to this gospel foreshadowing that's happened here wasn't the ram that they found in the thickets that day, but was Jesus. The son whom God the Father has not spared, not withheld. The one who John the Baptist, when he first sees, will say, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is recklessly generous. He gives you, you, a sinner, the most valuable thing he ever could, his son. So why would he ever hold out on you lesser things than that? God is not stingy. His posture isn't, how little can I get away with giving? So you don't have to think, how do I leverage blessing out of him? How do I force his hand He's not stingy, so you don't have to do that. You won't miss out, firstly. But secondly, accusations don't stick. Who shall bring any charge? The word there, it's it's about calling in a debt. Who will be able to call in any debt on you against God's elect? It is God who justifies. See, the last verse dealt with how God behaves, that he is generous. And if he's so generous as to give the most valuable thing in his world, his son, But why on earth is he going to be bothered about giving lesser things to you? Of course he's not. That was about how God behaves. But now this is about how people might behave towards you. Who shall bring any charge? Of course, actually, lots of people may bring charges. And Satan, the accuser, will certainly do so in your life. But the point is, who can bring a charge that sticks? 
Because God is not only the one who judges, but the one who justifies here. And the word there actually is makes righteous. He's not only playing the role of the judge, but the one who makes you righteous. Accusations don't stick. But thirdly, you won't lose it. Verse 34, look at that. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Let me read the full bit of that verse. I haven't got it all here. He's the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who is to condemn? Who is to, and the word there again, and this is legal language like Paul has done many times through the letters so far. Who is the one who is going to be the one to hand down a sentence? The one who brings the verdict, who sends you down. God alone is your judge. Though you were guilty, he's freed you. He's told us this already. Your sin is against God first and foremost. So it's him who should sentence, not others or even yourself. He is, Romans chapter 3, verse 26, just and the justifier, judge and saviour of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, and the daily reflections this week, I hope, will help you sort of tease this out through the week. I think it would be important to do that, but you have more time to do that sort of personally. But now, if you find yourself living as a hostage to other people's approval, your problem is you're not seeing God as big enough. You sort of become a bit of a martyr to your need, that you're seeing their voice as more important than God's. But flip it another way. If you find yourself unable to accept forgiveness for yourself, feeling that no matter what God says, well, this is not how I feel, and I just don't think I can allow myself off on this, you two are not seeing God as big enough. See, it poses as a super humility, doesn't it? I just don't think enough of myself to accept that for myself. It's actually wounded and unmet pride. You're seeing your voice as more important than God's. It doesn't matter if God says I'm forgiven because I don't say it. What does it matter what you say? What does it matter what they say? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is. And yet he hasn't. He's died. He's been raised. He's at the right hand. He's pleading for you. Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. It's accepted because he's raised. He's now ruling with God at his right hand. He's now pleading for you. You won't lose it. But then fourthly, you won't be separated. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul asks. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You won't 
be separated. And yet there are many adversities that we face and that can really sting. Paul lists a bunch of them there, doesn't he? Paul is wonderfully realistic about life. He's not telling you these things won't happen. However, none of these separate us from God's love. There are moments in which, in fact, God's love might become all the more clearer to you. That God works again all things together for the good of those who love him. Even bad things, even sad things, even things you wouldn't choose yourself. So we have no need to fear anything ripping away our salvation in him because it's rooted in him. It's rooted in a finished work. See the security of God's favor, security of your salvation. And lastly, we see the security of God's love. You'll see this in verses 37 to 39. Paul is showing us here the security of God's love, firstly, in a positive affirmation in verse 37. He gives us a positive statement there. And then secondly, he gives a series of potential threats, again in verses 38 to 39, and then a definitive answer at the end of verse 39. Look at that big statement there in verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. The word there in the original language is hyper nikomen. Hyper, super, nike. The sort of root word of nikomen is victory. That's why the trainers chose that name. Super victory. It's a win that somehow is more than a win. It's bigger than just the victory itself. A victory so resounding, it somehow sort of redefines expectations. And the most obvious example I can think of in my lifetime of witnessing is Usain Bolt winning the Olympic gold and smashing the world record. And doing so, where in the last 20 to 30 meters, he slowed down. He could have broke it by more if he'd wanted to. But in some ways, he sort of had an element of mercy. A victory that was more than just a victory. It wasn't just a win. He annihilated everyone. He could have run that race back to back and won it again. We are more than conquerors. Those who win with a victory so resounding, it's more than just stumbling over the line. More than conquerors. It's about a level of victory. More than just winning, but winning on an unprecedented level. We're more than conquerors. It's also about the nature of that victory. You know, that word conquerors is challenging, isn't it? It has very colonial sort of tones, doesn't it? And one of the things we know about conquerors and conquest, conquistadors and others, is that what they do is they take what isn't theirs. That's not really a victory, is it? Usually end up losing it eventually. Don't keep it forever. But we are more than conquerors. There's a different nature to our victory. The blessings that we receive from God are not things that we've taken wrongfully. Things that are rightfully ours. So Paul will say, as he said earlier, we're heirs. It's all legitimate. It's all given. Haven't had to reach out to take something that doesn't belong to us. We're more than conquerors. We're not imposters here. Everything God gives you, you rightly own. You're not an imposter. You don't have to worry that you'll lose it again someday. And yet, how has he done this? Look at verse 37 there. Through him who loved us. 
That is God himself. He does it. And he does it because of who he is. Because he is in and of himself loving. And then skip ahead a little bit just to the end of verse 39 there. Because there is potential for things to separate us from feeling this, isn't there? Though they need not do so. Skipping ahead just a little bit to see how Paul finishes this line of thought helps us to see what he's doing in this list of threats. Because he says that nothing or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. But we do get a list of potential things, don't we? Firstly, there is mortality, neither death nor life. You can't ever be apart from God's love, whether you're alive or even dead. Psalm 139 sort of gets across this thought. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shale, you're there. The point is, I won't escape you even when I die. Even mortality isn't enough to separate you from God or be beyond his realm. Firstly, there's mortality. Secondly, there's spiritual powers, isn't there? Neither angels nor rulers. Well, the word might be a bit better, and it's the word he uses in other places to talk about this, principalities, spiritual powers. And always put across sort of as an opposite to angels. You have positive sort of spiritual forces who uh, are submissive to God and do his work, are ministering spirits, and then you also have malevolent spirits, a demonic realm. Spiritual powers won't separate you from his love. They're a reality, but they have no power to separate you from God. We hear of angels elsewhere. Hebrews 1 verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who come to inherit salvation? I.e., angels serve us. In a way, we might be able to say, simplistic way to put it, but they're not as valuable as us. You may have less power than an angel, but you have a higher position since they exist to help you. And yet, on the other hand, these principalities, Paul talks about them in Colossians 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, the word there again is principalities, and put them to open shame. Though there are demonic influences and presences at times, They do not have power over you as a Christian. Nor can you be possessed by demons because you're Christ's possession and the Spirit himself dwells within you. So that Paul concludes, again, Colossians 2, verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Uh, That is just sort of very obvious physical, material sort of spirituality, you know, avoiding certain foods, um, going to certain festival days, you know, all that sort of thing. Don't do this, do that. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. I think his point is, don't be thinking too much about spiritual powers. They exist, there's a reality, but don't be overtaken by them. You'll not be separated from his love by mortality or spiritual powers or thirdly, circumstances, whether things present or things to come. Circumstances now, circumstances to come, maybe even circumstances in the past, are all far less powerful than God over you. See, rather than letting circumstances, whether past, present, 
future define God for you, who he is, what he's done, who you are because of what he's done, and who he says you are, and how you're to live out of that, we're to let God, who God is and what he's done, decide who you are and how you will live through your circumstances that you have been in, that you are in, that you will be in. And again, as we think about this passage through the week, some of the reflections will help us to think about that and turn that over. But mortality doesn't separate us from his love. Spiritual powers don't. Circumstances don't. Rulers don't, nor powers. Rulers can make policies. They can make policies that sometimes frustrate faith, but they've no means to extinguish your faith. And here he's thinking about earthly rulers. Fifthly, emotions don't have to. He says here, nor height, nor depths. And there's a really interesting sort of play on words in, in the original language because it's about height, hype, soma, hype, super, high, body, and depths, bathos. You think of the word bath. It means about like lying down. Whether you're feeling 10 foot tall on cloud nine or whether you're feeling absolutely on the floor, it doesn't have the power to separate you from God's love. Don't mistake your feelings for God's verdict or replace your feelings for God's verdict. And then lastly, Paul finishes with a wonderful catch-all thing. Anything, anything doesn't have the power to separate you from God's love, nor anything else in all creation. By definition, all things within creation are created by the creator and so have no power to overrule God's plans for your life nothing will be able has the power has the capacity has the ability to separate us from the love of God you don't have to fear God's love running out or wearing thin he'll not walk out on you he's steady he's unchanging all those things there that Paul lists can separate us from the love of uh, God in some ways, can't they? We know that and experience that, that actually sometimes those things do. So how can Paul say this? How can he say that they won't? Well, they all can, only if we allow them to, if we give them the power to. They do not, in and of themselves, have the power to do that for us and over us. We come back to, who do you believe? Who do you tell yourself has power? God or your circumstances. Nothing has the power to separate us from the love of God. There's a security of God's favour, of your salvation, and of God's love. You know, you may struggle to feel a sense of security in some of your relationships. Perhaps people have been hard to please in your life. Perhaps maybe even at points walked out on you and left you sort of feeling abandoned. And unlovable. And these wounds can be very significant for us, can't they? But you will never have to feel that way about God. And this message is important as we close because it's not just about how you see you, but it's about how you treat others. Quote from the theologian Jürgen Moltmann. He says, It is only the person who knows that he or she is accepted, who can accept others without dominating them. The person who has become free in himself 
or herself can liberate others and share their sufferings. It's only when you can really know that sense of security in God's love for you that you will really be able to express that and share that with others too. That's why it's so important. Until you can know that yourself, you'll struggle to be able to do that with and for others. And if we can grasp hold of that, then we'll be able to do that for others. Be able to love as Christ has loved us.